we're going to be wrapping up the book of Esther. And uh, last week, if you were with us, um, or maybe you caught it online, last week we covered two chapters of the book of Esther that flowed together quite beautifully. And then this week, we're actually going to be covering three chapters of the book of Esther. So we have work to do. About 2,000 words and only two hours to cover it in. I don't know why you're laughing. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, See, here's, here's where we're actually, we're cheating a little bit, because I said we have three chapters. Chapter number 10 has about three verses, all right? So we're just plugging that one in for good measure to wrap out the whole book. Really, what we're going to do today, I'm going to prepare you for it, because it's going to be a little bit different um, than the way that I normally, I normally like to be illustrative, and we'll have some illustration. Uh, but really, what we're going to be doing today is we have a lot of ground to cover. What we're going to do today is we've looked at the book of Esther and we've seen how God has put this whole thing together. Today we're going to kind of wrap it up, put a neat little bow on it, and finish up the study that we've been working our way through. And so as we come to chapter number eight, I want to make sure that everyone is caught up in the story. I don't want to leave anyone behind today. So very quickly, Esther, in three minutes, um, we have a king by the name of Ahasuerus, the ruler of the Medo-Persian Empire. And this man is a sovereign, meaning that he can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, to whoever he wants, whomever he wants. All right? There's no one stopping Ahasuerus. He is the man. In fact, as soon as he makes an edict, it is impossible for it to be reversed. So when he says a thing, it's getting done or someone is paying the price for it, right? And so Ahasuerus, um, being a terrible leader, instead of fighting for uh, his wife and fighting for the kingdom, he fights for himself and whatever he wants. And so we find that he's a manipulator, he's a dominator, he's an abdicator. And he puts aside his wife, Vashti, the queen, and instead says, we're going to replace her because she has displeased me. She stood up to me, and so I don't want her around anymore because I don't want people that stand up to me, if that tells you anything about his leadership. So he then has this terrible beauty pageant in which Esther is chosen to be the new queen. Esther is a Jew raised by her cousin Mordecai. And Mordecai sits at the king's gate. He is a servant of the king. Enter wicked Haman, the enemy of the Jews. In fact, the title that's given to him all throughout the book of Esther. Haman sees Mordecai, finds out that Mordecai is a Jew. Mordecai does not bow to Haman. And so Haman says, you know what? I want that guy dead. And not just him, but all of his people. Through study, we find that Haman is not just any enemy of the Jews, but he is a descendant of a nation called the Amalekites. This is the bitter enemy of the Jewish people for generations. And so this is something that has been stirring and that has been boiling up beneath the surface for centuries. And now Haman is exacting this plot to kill Mordecai and with him the rest of the Jewish people within the empire. And so all of this is coming down, but then we find that God takes this plot of Haman and he turns it around. And instead of Haman finding Mordecai, instead of Haman having his way with Mordecai, God reverses this, and Mordecai has his way with Haman. Haman is executed. He is hanged on his own gallows, we find in chapter 6 and 7. And so Haman is no longer a threat, but here's a problem. The edict to kill the Jewish people did not come from Haman alone. It came from King Ahasuerus. And once an edict is set into law within the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, what happens? It's carried out. It can't be stopped. 
And so that's where we find the story picking up in chapter number eight. Haman is gone, but the Jews are not safe. So what happens next? How does God, the invisible God, the one working behind the scenes, exacting his will in the middle of these circumstances where he has never seen, how does he handle this next situation? Let's look at chapter number eight. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman. Did you catch that? On that day, Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther told what he was to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther sat Mordecai over the house of Haman. We're going to come back to this, but this is very significant. Here we find that through all of this, God has taken from Haman, the one who was number two, second only to the king. And in fact, remember uh, Ahasuerus being an abdicator? Who's wearing the signet ring this whole time? Who's the one signing things into law? It was Haman until he had to execute Haman. And now he takes the ring that he took to Haman and he gives it to Mordecai. And so Mordecai might be second in command, but he's the guy with the ring. He now has authority and power. God has raised up Mordecai. And Ahasuerus now has given the house of Haman to Esther and Mordecai. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king had held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and I found favor in his sight, if this thing seem right before the king, and if I'm pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? And so what is she doing? She's pleading for the king to revoke Haman's laws. Well, there's a problem. Verse 7, the king of Hashuera said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew. You see this coming, right? Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman. They have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hand on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. And so what does he say? He says, Esther, I've had to do this before. It almost sounds like, right? He writes, instead of revoking the edict, because he can't, he gives a counter edict. And so he tells the people, he, say, he tells Esther here, he says, write whatever you think will save your people, and you can seal it with the ring. Verse 9, the king's scribes were summoned at the time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. So this is in the third month of the Jewish calendar year, Okay. Um, this probably relates to about the time of year that we are actually in right now. And so this is, this is, again, another important detail here. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded the Jews, to the satraps, the governors, the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script, to each people in its own language, to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers, riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives 
to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. And so what, what's the edict here? What's taking place? Ahasuerus, uh, this, in his name, this decree goes out. And now there's a, there's a lot of ground to cover, right? 127 provinces. This empire stretching from India all the way into Africa, down to Ethiopia, up north, uh, covering Iraq, Turkey, uh, Iran. And so major, major portions of land. And they've got to get word to all of these provinces. And this edict is coming down on which month? It's the 12th month of Adar, right? And so they have about nine months to get people everywhere around this empire that would be a similar scale to the United States. Without the internet, without automobiles, without trains, without any of these things. So the king says, take these horses, go into all the corners of the empire. And when you get there, here is the edict that you are delivering. The people of the Jews have the right to defend themselves. And in fact, if you attack them, they can take you, they can attack you, and they can take whatever you have if they wish. And so what is he doing? He's almost inciting like a war within it, but he says, hey, I can't revoke this, but you have the right to defend yourself. And we already know what God has been doing through the book of Esther, do we not? And now God has placed who as the number two person in all of the empire? You have Mordecai. And so God is working all of these things out. We're going to continue reading just another moment, and then we're going to jump into what does this all mean? How does this all apply to us? Verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. And so what do we find? Mordecai is dressed up in these royal robes. Only this time, it's not ironic. Last time, when he was marching through, he was paraded through the city in royal robes in chapter 6 and 7, he was a man sentenced to death with the appearance of royalty, right? Well, now he's actually in authority. And then, in fact, so many people are afraid of the Jews now. What's happening? Many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. So a moment ago, the Jews were condemned people, and they still are to a degree, right? And now what's happening? There are people that are saying, oh, oh, I never told you I was Jewish? Oh, yeah, way, way back on my aunt's side or something. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, oh, I'm a Jew too. Because the fear of the Jews had fallen upon the people. And so, what are, we, what are we seeing going on here? We find that God has placed the right people in the right places at the right time. And, and so, we're going to jump ahead. I'm not going to read all of chapter number 9, but watch, watch what's going on here. Uh, verse number 1 of chapter number 9 is very important. Now, in the 12th month, so this is now, fast forward, we're in the 12th month now. The edict has been delivered. We're in the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out. 
On the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. And the Jews gathered it in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ashwares to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples, officials, provinces, satraps, governors, royal agents, helped the Jews, for fear of Mordecai had fallen on them, for Mordecai was great in the king's house. Verse number five, the Jews struck all the enemies with a sword, killing and destroying them, did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshadatha and Dalthon and Ashpera, Partha, Adelia, Aradatha, other people, the ten sons of Haman, verse number 10, the son of Hamadatha, the enemies of the Jews. But watch this. They laid no hand on the plunder. And that very day, those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther in Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the ten sons of Haman. Now, let's clear something up really quick. Are the Jews going around and just slaughtering people systematically? Uh, is that, are they just going around and they're being like, hey, I don't like you, and they're just recklessly? No. What is the edict that the Jews are allowed to carry out? They are allowed to defend themselves, right? So even after Haman was destroyed, these numbers that we're reading are people who were still trying to carry out the vision and the desire of Haman. The enemies of God were still in play, even though Haman had been killed. They weren't safe to assume that now that Haman was gone, the threat was gone, because it was not. But we find that God still gives victory here. And so what we find is that uh, all of these, God opens up the doors, and that the people of God are able to defend themselves and able to stand before their enemies. But watch this. Verse number 15 says it again. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also the 14th day of the month of Adar. They killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Verse 16, the rest of the Jews in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from the enemies and killed 75,000. This is across the kingdom, 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on on the plunder. And then what happens? Uh, we see that they celebrate what's going on here. They institute a, a feast. And then in verse number 20, Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Hashuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and the 15th day of the same year by year as the days which the Jews got relief from their enemies when their sorrow was turned into gladness from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness. Jump down to verse number 24. Uh, Haman the Agagite, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them. And it cast purr, that is, lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on its own head, that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term pure. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring, and all that joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written at the time appointed every year. And so we find at the very end of all of this, there's a feast. 
uh, that's inaugurated, this Feast of Purim. And, and Purim, it's interesting, this feast, because think about what just took place. The pure are casting lots is another biblical term for this. It's a game of chance by which Haman selected this day that would end up bringing victory to the Jewish people, bringing safety to the Jewish people. And this would almost be, this is kind of funny because they call this feast Purim after the pure. This would almost be like in English if we had a feast of dice. And so at the end of all of this, the feast of dice is initiated and we celebrate God's working through the dice. So you say, all right, Nate, well, that was a lot, right? We're drinking from a fire hydrant, aren't we, today? As we wrap this up, there are, there are specifically four areas that I want to put some focus on today. There are four areas that I want to hone in on, four lessons from the book of Esther. Some of these uh, we're reminded of in these final chapters. Some of these are, are brought to us afresh in these final chapters. The, the first lesson that we learn in the book of Esther is this. The book of Esther is the shadow where Christ is the substance. The book of Esther is the shadow where Christ is the substance. We talked about this a little bit a couple of weeks ago as we went into uh, what we call the types of the Bible. Hebrews chapter number 8 uh, gives us a little bit of an explanation there. If you want to turn over there just for a moment, Hebrews chapter number 8, and we're going to look at verse number 5. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse number 5. As we read and as we study through the Old Testament, this is a, a verse that really informs our understanding of the Old Testament and how it applies to us today. Look here at um, chapter number 8 of the book of Hebrews, verse number 5. Uh, we'll look at verse number 4 to get a little bit of explanation. The author of Hebrews is writing about the priests. And so he's writing about this Old Testament office, and he says this, Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. And so he, he's saying this. Here's what's happening in this passage. He says, These things that were instituted, the law that we read about before, these are a copy and a shadow. This is a pattern or a type of the things that were to come. And so even as we look at the book of Esther, we find that in Esther, Esther is a shadow where Christ is the substance. So next time the book of Esther comes up, the book of Esther is not just about a brave young woman who stands before the king of Persia. Is that part of the story? Yes, absolutely. The courage of Esther to stand up there, the obedience and the repentance of Mordecai to lead in this, the, the, all of these things that took place, these are incredible things, but all of these point us to a better Esther, and that is Jesus Christ. The one who not only risked his life for his people, but laid it down freely for our salvation. Even as you and I are condemned to die because of our sin, even though we are separated from God, even though that is what is awaiting us, Jesus came. Jesus stepped in, and Jesus made a difference. It's the gospel. Jesus in my place. And so as we look at Esther, Jesus is not like Esther. He's a better Esther. And throughout the book of Esther, Esther is a shadow where Christ is the substance, the real thing and the final thing. Secondly, 
No enemy can stand before the true king's decrees. No enemy can stand before the true king's decrees. It was incredible as we watched through Haman, right? Haman gets all of this momentum and he goes all of this direction. He says, this is what we're going to do. I am going to destroy these Jewish people. I am going to take out Mordecai. This plan is all coming together. But then the edicts change, right? Because at the end of the day, Haman thought he had authority. Did Haman actually have authority? He was borrowing Ahasuerus' authority. But really, pause, at the end of the day, does Ahasuerus have authority? He's borrowing the authority of the true king. You see, no one can stand against the true king's edicts. As we look at the book of Esther, we find all of this taking place at the end. What's going on? Mordecai and Esther and Ahasuerus, they conceive up this plan, and they say, hey, we are going to issue this counter edict so that the people of God, the Jewish people, can stand up and they can defend themselves, they can fight for themselves, they can go out and they can uh, defend their enemies. And then what happened as the enemies of the Jewish people came against God's people? What happened to them? Do, what casualties do we read from the Jews? It doesn't say so many Jews were destroyed. But what we find is God takes all of this momentum from the enemy and he turns it around. He takes that sword that the enemy is swinging and he causes him to cut himself through on it. You see, no one can stand against the true king's edicts. When God says that something is going to be done, that thing will be done. See, Ahasuerus, he had influence and in that he could set a law in motion. But we all understand that laws can be broken, can they not? Laws are things that can be broken, or they can be changed, or they can be altered, or they can be uh, counteracted. When God speaks... His speaking is his doing. There's not a separation. There might be a separation in time, but when God says that something will occur, that thing is going to happen. And there's nothing that you can do to change it. There's nothing I can do to change it. When God speaks, it's coming. And when Jesus says that I've come to give life, he came to give life. When Jesus says, I've come to seek and to save, he's come to seek and to save. Uh, when he says that, he's not willing that any should perish, he's not willing that any should perish. There's nothing that is going to come in and change the promises of God and alter them so that they are not applicable to you and to me. When God speaks, he does. Think about this, the power of the words of God, the power of the edicts of God. Genesis chapter 1, he said, let there be light. And there was light. And he didn't need Siri for it. He didn't need Alexa. He didn't need a clapper. He didn't need any of these things, right? We're amazed today at the things we can do with our voice, right? Um, if I'm ever texting you and it says sent by Siri, it's probably got all kinds of typos and this and that, right? But I feel tech savvy when I'm driving and I have my headphone in and I say, hey, Siri, text so-and-so. And it comes out and it's all garbage, right? Because it doesn't know what I'm saying and I talk too fast for Siri and I have to slow down and then it misspells things and then whatever. When God says it's done, his words contain power. 
And if you think Ahasuerus's edicts had influence, they are nothing compared to the influence and to the action and to the authority that takes place at the voice of God. No one can stand before the true king's edicts. And, and understand this with me, that our role here, just as the Jewish people were put in a position to defend themselves and to seek justice, the Jewish people were not given permission or given the uh, account to seek vengeance. They didn't seek vengeance. Now, the biblical, when you see the biblical word for vengeance, most often that means justice. When you and I think vengeance, we think revenge. Well, that's not what's coming in here. It's not, hey, go hunt down anyone you don't like or who has ever wronged you. But this is make room for justice. Uh, I want you to understand, uh, thirdly, God leaves nothing to chance. God leaves nothing to chance. Really going from broad to specific here. God leaves nothing to chance. Think about the, the feast. This whole book is written to record the feast, right? What's the feast called? Purim. What's the name of the feast? I mean, Purim. And you're like, okay, all right, Purim. Literally, it means dice, right? Could you imagine having a feast of dice? What would you, what would you do to celebrate the feast of dice, all right? I mean, you're playing Yahtzee all night or something, right? Have you ever looked at someone and been like, how are you so good at Yahtzee or sorry or whatever? No, like those are games of what? Chance. You, you, those are the games that you can look at someone and go, you got lucky, right? Because you don't meet a good dice roller. If you meet a good dice roller, check the dice, okay? There's a problem. Because it's supposed to be a game of chance. It's supposed to be a game of luck. But here, God didn't let this become chance. He knew. He orchestrated. He made it all happen. God was in control of even the dice. Now think about this with me. How big of a deal is a dice roll? Major thing? Minor thing? Forgettable thing? Like we don't, it's not a major life occurrence when we roll a dice, is it? Right? It's just, if you're at home and you're playing, oh, I'm just going to keep using Yahtzee, right? You dump that cup out, you have those dice roll out onto the table. Big deal, not big deal. Hopefully not big deal. Hopefully you guys aren't playing high stakes Yahtzee, all right? Not big deal. God leaves nothing to chance. God doesn't say, oh, well, I hope that everything works together. Uh, he doesn't even write to us and say, you know, Paul doesn't write and say, hey, um, Roman believers, as he's penning the book of Romans, he doesn't say, we hope that all things work together for good to them that love God. No, they're called according to his purpose. You see, our faith is not a holy hoping for the best. It's not, oh, well, I really hope that. I'll, no. What does Paul say as he's writing the book of Romans? We know that all things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. God doesn't leave things to chance. God doesn't leave things up in the air and, oh, well, we'll just see what happens. There are times that I have to utter the words, well, we'll just see what happens. Why? 
because I can't control those things or I shouldn't try to control those things. But God doesn't sit back and go, hey, let's just see what happens. Let's just watch and see how it all plays out. No, God is active and he is involved in every detail of your life. This whole book is about how he is moving and he is acting and he is doing even, and not even even, especially when you can't see what he's doing. Purim, dice, God leaves nothing to chance. Uh, but let me, let me go a step further with you in this. If God uses nothing, if God leaves nothing to chance, then it's not a mistake that you're sitting in here today. It's not a mistake that you're going to be in your neighborhood tomorrow or at your place of work or at school or interacting with the people he's placed you around. God didn't make a mistake when he allowed you to buy or rent the place where you live. God did not make a mistake. It didn't get past him. It didn't catch him off guard when any of these things happened in your life. We have all been surprised, or sometimes we think, oh, well, I just lucked into this event. Oh, we got lucky that we were able to buy this home when we were, or we were able to get this plot of land, or we were able to get this job, and oh, we got lucky that this is how it took place. God's not surprised by that. God's working in that. And so God has placed you where you are on purpose. Because understand this, that you are going to be around people that I could never reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are going to have relationships with people that the person beside you will never meet. God didn't put you there on accident. He didn't look up one day and say, oh, oh man, I wanted them to be. No. No. He orchestrates and he directs our steps. He helps us to move the way that he desires us to move. But what does the proverb say? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean on into your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. You see those twists and turns in life that we don't predict and we don't see coming? They didn't surprise God. They didn't catch him off guard. He's not taken aback by, oh, that happened to that. No, he sees these things. And he has placed them in your life on purpose. If God controls the dice, or as Jesus would say in the New Testament, if he cares for the sparrow and the lilies, and if he knows the hairs on your head, does he not care for you? And so, my friends, my fellow believers in Christ, that should put us in a position that we are looking and we are trying to see, God, where are you working in my life? God, why have you placed me in this career field? God, why did you place me in this neighborhood? God, why did you bring this person into my life? And you see, we may not know all the answers to that in this life, but he's done it on purpose. If these minor details are so big to God that he is in the middle of them, we can't overlook them and think that the big things of life are things that happen by accident. God doesn't operate in chance. God operates according to his plan, and he moves and he guides and directs as he sees fit. And finally this. 
I love this. This is a, a, a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful picture that takes place here in the book of Esther. The strong man is bound, and we have permission to plunder. The strong man is bound, and we have permission to plunder. Jesus gives this uh, metaphor, this story in Mark chapter number 3 when he speaks over, uh, he speaks about the victory over evil. He says, you wouldn't come into a strong man's house and try to plunder his household unless you were to first bind the strong man. And so what is he speaking of? It's, uh, I'll cut it short for sake of our time, but it's a metaphor of the binding of Satan. How through the work of Jesus Christ, Satan is not able to have victory. He says, then you can go into the household of the strong man and plunder. You can go into the household and take the things that once belonged to him, but now can be yours. And so what do we find here in the book of Esther? What's going on? We find that the very beginning of chapter number eight, on the day that King Ahasuerus gave to Esther the house of Haman. And then he takes the signet ring from who? Haman, and gives it to Mordecai. And Esther appoints Mordecai over the household of Haman. You see, there's a plundering of the house of Haman that is taking place. There's a plundering, there's a victory that has been given even throughout the whole kingdom. But what we find is that the enemy's things, the things that once belonged to Haman, are now being given to Mordecai. The things that once belonged to the enemy are now given to the people of God. But you know what's also really interesting is that the king has given permission for the Jewish people to go and to take from everybody. But there are times when they go in, it says they don't take the plunder from anyone else. They don't take the plunder from the other, uh, the others that are following after this enemy. They're only taking this plunder from Haman. You see, the motive of all of this as it's shaking out, the motive of this is not gain, it's defense, right? The Jewish people aren't going around seeking their own personal gain. They're seeking their personal ability to live, all right? They're not trying to get wealthy over what's taking place. They're trying to preserve their lives. But what we do see is we do see that they're given that household that belonged to Haman, in this plundering, I want, you to, I want you to understand this in the context of the strong man, the enemy that we have. At the end of this book, the enemy cannot hurt the people of God. So let me say this to you today, and let me uh, remind all of us about this. Your enemy can't hurt you. Your enemy cannot hurt you. When I speak of your enemy, I hope a face doesn't come to mind. I hope you're not looking across the room. We're not talking about a flesh and blood enemy. We're talking about our adversary, the devil. But he cannot, listen to me, he cannot hurt you. You say, well, what if he takes away, what if my job goes away and disappears? What if my retirement account fails? There's some economic downturn. How, what about that? What about my health? What if my health is removed from me or taken from me? What if my family members, what if I lose someone that I care deeply about? Understand this. The enemy can't have your soul. If you belong to God, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the enemy can't have it. It belongs to him. 
You are in, listen, Jesus says, I'm in you and you are in my father's hand. No man can pluck you out of my father's hand. There's no one that is able to lay claim to that. You belong to him, no one else. That means this, there is nothing that the enemy can do that God has not allowed him to do. The strong man is bound. There is nothing that can take place in your life that God has not allowed into it. He can't have anything that God has not allowed him to take. And so if you are under the protection of God and you are under the care of God, then there's not a situation that comes into your life that is not allowed by God's hand. Through his wisdom, through his providence, through his sovereignty, he has allowed these things to come into your life. And so if your faith is in him, then our faith says and our faith knows and acknowledges that there's nothing truly bad that can happen, right? You say, what about, what if someone I care about dies? Listen, in the last month, we've had two funeral services in this room. As we came in here, both times, you know what we said? We said, the body's here, but they're doing better. They're whole again. They're healed. There's no discomfort. There's no pain. They are with their Savior. So death with a Christian, you can't threaten me with a good time. All right? To live is Christ, but what does Paul say? To die, oh, that's gain. He says, I'm here for a while because, God, you've placed me here. And he says, God, he's even speaking to these believers, and he says, God, you, God has allowed me to be here. It's for your gain. If it were up to me, if I were to get executed tomorrow, hey, I'm with him, and that's a wonderful thing, but God has left me here for your sakes. And so understand that the worst thing that the world can throw at us doesn't rob us of the victory that God has given to us. The enemy can't have you. You belong to him. And so the enemy can't come in and can't conquer you. This is why we don't have to fear as believers. This is why we don't have to worry as believers. Because God has already given us the victory through faith. 1 John chapter number 5. And so this is what it means, church. It means this. It means that the time to plunder the house of Haman is upon us. The time to plunder the house of Haman is upon us. The time to enact the edict that the king has given. You see, look at uh, chapter number 8. This is really fascinating to me. Watch what's going on here, and we're going to read for just a moment. Esther chapter number 8. He makes a big deal, the author of Esther does. They make a big deal over the, the provinces, the 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. Um, and verse number 10, he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews, that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate. So, so what's happening? What's happening? Let's back up half a step. The king has made this edict or allowed this edict to be passed, right? But now feet need to be put to this edict. What good is the edict? if it never leaves Susa. What good is the edict? If the edict is given in time, if the salvation of the Jews is given in time, the edict comes down, 
But it's only in the capital. If it's only in the, the, uh, the, the household of the king. If that edict never gets to the provinces, what good is it to the rest of the Jews? What happens to everybody else in the kingdom if the edict never leaves the capital? They're done for, right? There's good news for them, but the good news never makes it to the ears of those who need to hear it. Does anyone see where I'm going? Church, we gather here today to lift up the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We stand here today saying we are a people condemned to death, condemned to separation forever from God in a place that the Bible calls hell. This is a real place that the Bible teaches exists. That doesn't mean that we like it. It means that we believe it. And we believe that God doesn't care much for it either. So he sent his son, Jesus, who died on our behalf. Gave us a way that we can be saved from this sin. It's been given to us. It's been granted to us. We sit in here today and we hear the gospel. And we are here because we believe the gospel. But church, there is a world around us. There is a community around us filled with people that have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. How are they going to hear it? Unless messengers are sent. You see, the gospel doesn't do any good if we keep it to ourselves. The gospel will never change that friend of yours unless they hear it. The gospel does not just work by placing a Bible magically in someone's hand or placing it on their head. The gospel works as it is proclaimed, as it is taught, as it is presented to those who need to hear it. So church, today, the victory has been won. It's been promised to us. It's right there. All we have to do is share it to get it out to those in need. You see, these writers that are given this message, they're given this edict, and they're told, go, go find a place where it's needed. And they're sent on purpose to these provinces, 127 of them. And they've got nine months to get the edict out. And after nine months, there is a day, there's a time, that if after this point, that edict has not been put in the hands of the right people, then people will perish. You following me? You say, well, Nate, there's no date on the calendar that says the same thing for us. There's no date in the calendar that we know of. But think about this. The Bible tells us, first of all, the Bible tells us that it's a point unto man once to die. And we're also told that our life is but a vapor. It appears for a little while and vanishes away. So while you may not know the date on the calendar, it doesn't mean that life goes on forever, does it? It doesn't mean that our time here to get the gospel out is forever, does it? There's a day that's going to come and it's going to be too late. Jesus said this, The night comes when no man can work. I must work the work of him that sent me while it is day. You see, there's a time that's coming. And then we know, we wait, we long for the return of Christ. What a wonderful day that will be. But when he returns, will he find us sowing the seeds for the harvest? Will he find us reaping the things that we have been sowing out? Where will he find us? What will we be doing? Will we be sharing and proclaiming this message of truth? 
Or will there be people that we could have shared the gospel with? That God could have opened the doors with? You see, God didn't put you where you are on accident. So who has he put in your life to share the gospel with? Who is the person that you see consistently, this person you know that they, they need the gospel of Christ? The person that even right now as I say these things, the names, the faces, the places that come to mind, who is that? Can I challenge you, church? Can I, can I, we're not even in our series on saying yes yet. Can I ask you this? As God places people on your heart, as God places people on your mind, can you say yes to sharing the gospel with them? Can you say yes to taking the message that you have? And listen, I'm not even saying, you might say, well, I work an hour away from here, and so I have to commute back and forth, so I can't. No, 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 I'm not even saying invite them to our church. Listen, we want our church to be a place where they can come and they can grow and they can develop in their faith and they can be sent out likewise. I'm saying give them the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm saying tell them about the good news. It's already been, the victory's already been won. The edict, hey, listen, it stands. We don't have to go crucify Christ again. That's done. You know what we have to do? Tell people. Share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, listen, tell everyone you know. Tell everyone you know. You know, you look at your neighbor and you say, well, I think they're already a believer in Christ. Well, then you know what? It won't hurt to tell them. You can't, it's not like a negative and a negative makes, it's not going to undo anything. Tell everyone you know. Because the fact is, is that if they have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ, hey, what greater thing could you have given to them? If they are a believer in Jesus, you know what? Maybe it'll spark in their mind. Hey, you know what? I should share my faith like that. You see, there's not a person that you interact with that's not in need of the gospel of Jesus. When we gather together on a Sunday morning, what do we preach to each other? What do we talk about to each other in our groups? When we come together in here, what do we? The gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing more, nothing less. You see, the gospel is not only the means by which we are saved, the gospel is the means by which we grow. So as you speak the gospel to your neighbors, as you go to them and you share your faith with them, listen, this is the gospel that changed you. This is the gospel that sets you free, that gave you life, that has said, hey, you can not only live eternally, but you can live abundantly. It's the gospel. So who are you going to share it with this week? Who are the people that God has placed you around? Listen, maybe it's a social gathering that you attend. Maybe it's an office setting. Listen, hey, I understand that. An earthly boss, I understand you can't spend all day talking about Jesus and not doing your job. But listen, you have a good reputation in that workplace. You have an investment with those people. A higher authority has called you to share the truth of the gospel. Have they not? You want to find a time to do it? You can find a time. We do the things we want to do, don't we? It's true for all of us. We do the things that we want to do. So share the gospel. Tell everyone you know. Tell everyone you know. You see, as Jesus tells the parable of the sower, this sower went out, and that sower, he, he sowed on all kinds of ground. Good ground, bad ground, hard ground, thorny ground, whatever ground. He sowed on all the ground. It wasn't his job to say, hey, you know what? That's not the right ground. I'm going to just sow on this over here. What does he do? He just sowed everywhere. See, my friends, we plant. We even water. 
God gives the increase. That's not our concern. You see, we as a church, we are sent out to take that which once belonged to Satan and say, listen, you've been set free. You've been set free. You once were bound by sin. But Jesus, but Jesus came. It's the best news I've ever heard. If you're sitting here today, you would probably say the same thing. So who in your life needs to hear it? Who in your life needs to understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just a fairy tale, it's not just a warm, fuzzy feeling, it's not just a prayer you prayed at a vacation Bible school. No, it's meaningful. It's weighty. It matters. It's important. So what are you going to do with the gospel as it's been given to you? Are you going to sit on it and you're going to hold it and keep it to yourself? I am so glad that I am saved as we turn on the news and we watch things that are happening, as we look out our windows and see our neighbors, what are you going to do with it? The choice is yours, church. You see, we've heard the message, we've heard the word of God today, this word of God that's been bearing weight on my heart for several days now, right? We open it up together and we respond to it. I've said this a number of times already, no response is a response. Church, what are we going to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ since it's been given to us?